This podcast is brought to you by Blackbee Ministries International. To find out more, visit blackbee.org. Welcome back to the Richard Blackaby Leadership Podcast. My name is Sam, and I'm your host, and I'm joined by the one and only Richard Blackaby. Good to be with you, Sam. It's good to see you, Richard. Uh, before we get started today, I wanted to uh, just maybe touch on an upcoming, well, two events that are that are happening with Blackaby, and that's our our biannual coaching workshop. And uh, if you've been listening to the podcast for the last few months, you will have heard uh, the ad for the in-person workshop uh, that's going to be happening in October. But before that, we have um, an online coaching workshop. It's going to take place uh, October 5th, 6th, 12th, and 13th. So that's mm-hmm. a Monday, Tuesday uh, for two weeks. And it's um, four hours, four and a half hours each time. And uh, th- th- we did the first one uh, like that, all virtual uh, back in uh, April, and uh, it, it went a lot better than I expected, and yeah. uh, it, it, it's been uh, exciting to see uh, that, that we're going to be able to do another one like this. And maybe why don't, just in a, in a, in a minute or so, tell us why should someone come to a coaching workshop, whether virtual or in person? Well, I tell you what, we've had just a huge response to that. And uh, whether you're looking at starting a coaching business where you're actually a professional coach uh, earning a living doing that, or maybe you're in management and you just need help in bringing out the best in your employees, uh, or even if you're just a parent and you maybe you've got teenage kids and you need help in knowing how to ask the right kind of questions. Yeah. We, we tend to be taught how to make statements, but we don't get as much help in knowing how to ask the right questions that lead people to the truth. Yeah, It's one thing to tell people the truth. It's another to lead them to the truth so that they discover it themselves. Yeah, yeah. And that all comes from just uh, coaching and learning how to just come alongside people and help them get where God wants them to be. And so probably the thing that's distinctive about us is there's lots of secular coaches out there and they basically say, what's your goal? How, where do you want to get to? And let me help you get there. Uh, we we very much have God a part of the process to say, where does God want you to be? What's God saying? And then we, let's journey together to get where God wants you to be. And, yeah. uh, and so a lot of people who are very familiar and have a lot of education in coaching have said that they really appreciated the Blackaby coaching approach because it, it very much involved God in the whole process. Yeah, yeah. Well, it's a very powerful, um, very powerful workshop uh, both in person and uh, uh, virtual. So I definitely encourage you guys to check that out. You can find out more at org, And of course, we'll leave links to, to all that in the show notes. Okay, with that aside, uh, let's turn our attention now to uh, today's podcast. And um, we're, we're doing another leader profile. We're doing yeah. a little back-to-back. Where uh, do all these leaders come from? I know, they're just coming out of the woodwork. <laughs> uh, but today we're looking at another uh, dubious leader, um, from the annals of history. So why don't you tell us uh, yeah. who we're looking at today? Well, I, yeah, we're a little I, sort of like uh, we're, let's let's look at a couple of these uh, more infamous sort of leaders. And uh, the one I thought we'd look at today is Napoleon Bonaparte. Mm-hmm. And when you think about strong leaders, uh, he tends to rise up there. We looked at uh, Henry VIII recently. Uh, Napoleon's another one of those guys that uh, demands attention. Yeah. In fact, uh, I've kind of based, I've got several biographies on him. I, I don't know that I, I necessarily know what is the most exhaustive, definitive uh, uh, biography on Napoleon. I, I've got one here by Paul Johnson that's uh, 
200 or so pages. It's, it's certainly 200 is, you know, that, that's... That's light that's, for, yeah, for biographies. That's a, that's a skimming of a life, uh, especially one like his. So uh, it's it's not bad for just a quick overview, but uh, I don't know that I could tell you that I know what, who the sort of authoritative person is. They're probably French, but... Uh, but this, this uh, Paul Johnson says that next to the life of Christ, that no one has had more books written about them than Napoleon. Mm. So that tell you something about wow. how fascinating he is. And uh, and of course, when you when you bore down and you start looking at people's lives like that, you realize well, number one, they they may be overdone somewhat. It's like wow, this guy had a lot of flaws. He had a lot. Of, he had feet of clay. What, what, why does he get so much press? And it is sort of a bit of a twist of history, just how that works. Why, why do some people, uh, you know, there's, there's people who've had a lot of success that don't get nearly the same print that a Napoleon gets. So what is it about certain people that just dominate history and yeah. exert such an influence for good or for bad, even centuries later? Yeah, that's that's true. And, um, you know, I think with with Napoleon, I I think maybe one thing that attracts a lot of people is his flaws and the fact that despite all of that, he, I mean, you know, for better or worse, he was able to accomplish quite a bit in his, Mm -hmm. in his life. So, uh, maybe let's just start with, with his, his early days, if you will. And, uh, what are some things that we need to know about Napoleon that maybe we just, we know he was short and he rode a big horse and (laughs) (laughs) all these sort of uh, things that have been handed down through the years. But what what are some things that we can pull out of his uh, life? Well, uh, he, for one is, uh, certainly he's born with an innate ambition. He, he's, it's as if he's trying to prove something his whole life. And uh, yeah, he's known as being uh, somewhat short. I, Johnson says he was five foot five inches. Uh, he, I think there's been a bit of debate about just if he was all that unusually short for his time or not, but uh, certainly wasn't large, wasn't a George Washington type person. Uh, and you know, there's so much about, uh, these kind of people that are the fate of history, just the little, you know, twerks or tweaks of history that are out of their control. It just so happens. One of those is that, of course, he's born in Corsica. It's an island. Uh, it actually belonged to Genoa, I think, in Italy. And the year before, uh, Napoleon is born, France buys Corsica. And so literally, if uh, if they had just purchased that deal uh, a few years later, he would have not been French. Hmm. And so he's not, he's not, you know, we think of him as one of France's greatest leaders. He wasn't French. Uh, he really was more Italian. And, uh, but the year before he's born, he, they, he, he all of a sudden they become territory of it's like being born maybe in Puerto Rico or somewhere. You're connected to the United States, but not necessarily on the mainland kind of thing. And yeah. so he's uh, born on a small island. Uh, when he leaves Corsica, he never returns. It's He he has no attachment to his uh, birthplace or the people there. His father dies while he's fairly young, I think maybe a teenager. Uh, but it's his mother that really has an influence on his life. So... So here he is trying to become the emperor of France, to bring France to its uh, glory, 
and he's not really French. And in fact, Johnson says he never really liked the French. And so <laughs> one thing that you discover about him is that he uh, he's an outsider trying to to prove something. And his whole life, he's in a hurry to prove things. And there is a whole philosophy about a Napoleonic complex, yeah. which basically says, and this really applies particularly to men, if you're a smaller man of stature, nothing wrong with that. And some very powerful men have been you know, small or short. Uh, but for some people, it, they, it creates an, almost an inferiority complex or... Uh, maybe if you were small and so you, you always got beat up as a kid or you weren't ever picked to be uh, a starting player on your soccer team or football team because you were too small. So you, so you go enter into adult life trying to prove that you're w a worthwhile human being. Yeah. And it's almost, and so there've been theories it's traditionally about Napoleon suggesting that if he'd only been born a few inches taller, he might not have caused so many wars across Europe. but uh, <laughs> So uh, are most historians attributing this chip on the shoulder to his, his stature? Or, well, or you... that was a theory. It's actually called the Napoleonic kind of theory uh, of, yeah, that he was trying to prove himself a man. And part of it, too, is that, uh, and uh, of course, it's all speculation. It's psychologizing back centuries later. But uh, sure. Johnson points out that uh, he had very small, what he would call feminine hands. Uh, and he had really a feminine, he calls it a sort of feminine body, uh, not a lot of like body hair or uh, soft layer of fat on him. Like it was, he was, uh, no one's accused him of being uh, like homosexual or anything, but they, he was just very a, a, an effeminate kind of body. Of course, he's also known as someone that is, uh, he, he, all of his pictures, he's got his hand inside his, uh, his jacket. It's like he's not, and it's almost like he was self-consciously aware that uh, uh, he had small hands and uh, wasn't very masculine. He's, he's, small of stature and so everyone always wonders why so many pictures of him he's got his hand hidden basically um and so yeah growing up he's got some things to prove and so you you know it's that's all just speculation it's you can't we don't know that he never said anything about that he never confessed to anybody why he did that so you can only guess, but you you do, but he does have an outsized uh, ambition. He's trying to make a name for himself, and he's trying to do it in a hurry. And uh, you you have to kind of ask yourself, what is he? What's this guy trying to prove? Yeah. Like, why? How do you get such an ego that you that ruling France, which would have been considered the perhaps the most powerful country in the world, perhaps? Uh, why is that not enough? Why is it that he has to also conquer all of Europe and? Why is it he's constantly looking for his next success? Uh, who's he trying to impress? Uh, and uh, I think uh, certainly a great discussion for leaders is, uh, what do, do you know what drives you? Mm -hmm. Do you know why, you, why people's opinions really matter so much to you? Or why when people criticize you it, uh, or, or they don't like a post you put on Facebook or something, why is it that you can, slights can, seem to cut so deep on you uh, yeah. or why is it that even though you have a good job or you have a good income you always 
want more and it's, you're not satisfied. And so there, there's a lot of uh, questions about Napoleon, but, but I think in part that's why he doesn't, uh, Johnson says that uh, he, he, he was never burdened with uh, idealism. In other words, he, he had no sort of philosophy of life that he was pursuing or theology. He was, he was not a religious person, didn't really believe in God. Uh, his hero, uh, not surprisingly, was Julius Caesar. And so I guess when he was a kid, he heard a priest one time say that Julius Caesar was in hell uh, because he wasn't a Christian, and, and that turned Napoleon off, that his hero, the church would say, was in hell. So he kind of gave up on the church. And uh, <laughs> But uh, he but he he's willing to sacrifice people. He Basically, what, uh, what uh, Johnson would say is that although Napoleon was trying to, kind of like Adolf Hitler in the Third Reich, he was trying to make bring Germany to its greatest height ever, the result is that he basically takes a first-rate power that France was and makes it leaves it a second-rate power when he's done. Hmm. Uh, and so he he leads the country to fight a lot of wars. A lot of Frenchmen get killed. A lot of French horses are killed. A lot of French money is spent, and basically he just exhausts the country, uh, and he turns and he creates a lot of enemies toward his country. And so, by the time he dies. Uh, the country is bankrupt, and uh, it's lost a ton of its young men uh, and, and future leaders, and uh, and is ripe to just be kind of put into a second-rate category. And so, he uh, and he does all of that really not. He he would say he's trying to make France great, but really he's trying to make himself great, mm-hmm. and um, and he's willing to pay any price and sacrifice any amount of people's lives and money uh, so that he can somehow feel good about who he is. Yeah. And so how does a guy like uh, Napoleon, how does he end up in that position to, to, to be ruler of France? Well, you know, it's like we've seen uh, in that the question we've done with many of these biographies is do, do great men make history or does history make great men? Yeah. And the same with uh, Winston Churchill. Churchill is also a very ambitious person, but uh, history has just not given him that big break he's been looking for until World War II comes along. And for Napoleon, he would have had a really difficult time breaking into the ranks. And this foreigner, basically, with a Italian-French accent, uh, no real ties, uh, no influence um, in France when... Uh, the French Revolution breaks out. Uh, but uh, interestingly, if you're a soldier, soldiers, although they, although it can be very traumatic, if you really are a career soldier, you kind of like there to be wars taking place. Uh, yeah. In a very crass sense, that's when you can get medals, when you can get promotions. And quite frankly, as, as Johnson says, when people are being killed on the battlefield, vacancies arise. And so you can very quickly move up the chain of command, which Napoleon does during the French Revolution and then the wars that are fought afterward. Uh, the, the the monarchists, the people supporting the king of France, are fighting with the British to try to fight against all the revolutionaries. And so Napoleon is uh, put in charge of one of the revolutionary armies and he makes a name for himself. He's, of course, he's daring, he's creative, he's ambitious. Uh, 
he very quickly uh, sees the uh, opportunities that come with cannons. He's a cannoneer. He's, he, he's really good at doing the math and calculating things. And, and he learns how to use cannons. Really, probably the first big three successes he has uh, are all with using cannons. And, uh, and his idea was uh, use it to bring fear into your enemy. Um, whether you're cannonading them, you're you're just bombarding them and pulverizing them, or the 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 noise of cannons, or the grape shot where you just mow down a bunch of uh, protesters or soldiers uh, in the front lines, uh, he he became a master at creating fear in people, and so a lot of his battles, he typically would begin by just unleashing all the cannons he had and trying to just intimidate and put fear into the soldiers' hearts and uh, uh, and then he'd follow it up with you know with an attack and so so he he starts out that way and he endears himself with his dash and his daring his flair uh, for adventure and uh, he always had a, a dramatic flair about how to do things that captured people's attention if you you know sometimes it doesn't matter what a great job you're doing if no one knows you're doing it and so yeah. he had a way of letting people know what he did and getting the credit for it. And uh, and he gets some lucky breaks. There's a very powerful person that takes him under wing and gives him uh, some roles that uh, he could never have just earned himself. Uh, certainly to be that famous, you get some lucky breaks along the way. But uh, what Napoleon, what he needs to do is he constantly has to prove himself. He's Basically, he's a great general, and what makes him a great general is that he is daring, for one thing. He moves quickly. Uh, he makes decisions quickly. He, they said he was really good at reading maps, which back in those days was very crucial. You didn't have drones overhead. Uh, you you yeah, didn't no have satellite satellites, uh, GPSs. He, uh, and he he could do the math. He could figure out right down to the hour how long it would take to move an army from here to there across this terrain and how the logistics of moving 200 cannon uh, to this position on this hilltop and so on. He could figure that all out and then uh, knew how to, to move things rapidly. And he was willing to take risks, which a lot of generals weren't. You, one big mistake could be the end of your military career. So the people oftentimes were more motivated by not making a mistake than by uh, claiming a brilliant victory. Yeah. Napoleon was never too worried about making mistakes. It was about uh, the next brilliant maneuver he could make. And so uh, he caught people by surprise. He was a bit unorthodox about some of the ways he would do things. He had several principles uh, that he tried to live by. Uh, one was uh, to to follow up success. If something's successful, then throw a lot more men there and resources there. Uh, he really liked to divide and conquer. So if he's fighting uh, against maybe two different countries' armies, like Russia and Austria, both coming at him, he would want to separate the two armies and fight, and and, and, and so he could outnumber them one together the two armies had more men than he had yeah but if he separated them he had more men than either single army had so he would that was kind of a strategy that's actually what he's going to try to do at waterloo but uh it's not going to quite work for him but uh right to the end uh he's he's using some techniques that at first are creative one of the, the things paul johnson points out is that uh 
that by 1813 or so, uh, Napoleon, what he says is he's uh, daring and uh, brave and and creative in a sense of working within the system, but he was never very good at inventing new things. And so in time, everybody else is going to copy him, and he's going to ultimately be out of date. Uh, he's actually quite conservative in a lot of what he does. And so he keeps, and of course, early on, he has some very brilliant successes. And so it's very difficult for him to put that aside and try something new. Hmm. And so in his later years, uh, his enemies are going to wise up to him and what he, what his methods are. Figure out his tricks. And and in a sense, that's really what's going to undo him at Waterloo is that he tries his tricks on uh, his opponents, but people like Wellington have studied him now for some time, and they figured out kind of what he does and how to counterbalance that. But but Napoleon doesn't really adjust his tactics. It's it's just work well for him. So he just and, and you know you can kind of tell. I, I and I think really what Waterloo represents is the high tide of. Uh, Napoleon, it's he's still using his techniques that have served him well, but but he's been found out, and it's not going to work this time. And uh, and a lot of leaders have their own Waterloo, where they keep. I've, I've known pastors who've done that in churches, yeah. and they keep using the same ministry approach, uh, and that's worked fine for years. But now technology's changing. There's other options. There's other churches in the area. There's uh, people have all heard that before. They're looking for something fresh, and uh, and these pastors just they don't know how. Hey, I've, this is how I've ministered for the last thirty five yeah. years. You know, it's always worked well for me. Or well, they get they get hung up, as you say, uh, on the method, and 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 not so much on the on the mission. So you just well, you know, we've always done it this way. And yeah, it's always worked, or it yeah. mostly works, and. And you, they can never um, separate that. So, well, let's take a quick break here. And when we come back, uh, we'll uh, just finish up with uh, Napoleon and see what we can learn, what else we can learn from his life. Twice a year, Blackaby Ministries hosts a spiritual leadership coaching workshop in the Atlanta area. The focus of this workshop is learning how to ask the right questions to help move people onto God's agenda. The next workshop is October 26th and 28th, and registration is open now. The early bird rate is available until September 26th, and space is limited. To find out more and to register, visit blackabycoaching.org. Links will be in the show notes. Well, Richard, we saw uh, before the break that... uh, you know, he had Napoleon had some early successes. He he did some creative stuff on the battlefield that that won him some early victories in his career. Um, maybe you could tell us what what contributed to his downfall and and ultimately what you know what would you say was his legacy? Uh, probably not uh, what he wanted it to be, but uh. <laughs> yeah. Well, he was he was always in a hurry. Well, the Duke of Wellington said he didn't have that Napoleon didn't have the patience to fight a defensive war. Uh, there were times where good strategy just said, "Hey, we're outnumbered. Uh, let's fight a defensive battle. Let's let's entrench and get the high ground and let them come to us." But Napoleon couldn't do that. He uh, partly because he he felt that he had to keep proving himself to his the French people. Uh, if he stopped winning battles, then they would they might stop supporting him. So yeah, he couldn't sit back and wait for enemies to come to him. He had to go after them and get a and he was always looking for a quick 
victory somewhere. And, and sometimes victories are slow and hard to come by, and you have to be patient. I think that's what someone like the Duke of Marlborough knew. He had a couple of spectacular victories over a 10-year period, but, but there were a lot of times where he was just tactically just maneuvering in the best position not to be beaten and looking for those moments. Uh, yeah. But Napoleon rushed things. They said that he was always in a hurry. He ate his food fast. He did everything fast, you know, 10 minutes, wolfed down his food because he was just always in a hurry. And I'm sure you've known people in business like that, uh, trying to climb that ladder. But yeah. Uh, but he, and he had some insecurities. He didn't, he had no real, uh, people that spoke into his life. He, uh, when he had his most success is when he typically had, uh, a chief administrator or two that would, would translate his orders and his wishes into logistics, uh, and communicate them properly. Uh, actually in the, the end of his, Rain, uh, when he faces Waterloo, his, one of his chief aides chose not to help him when he returned for that final stint, mm. and uh, and so he 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 was missing several of his key best administrators by the end uh, because he, in part, he didn't always use them wisely when he had them, uh, and too much of of his leadership was about him. At one point, when the tide is turning against him. Metternich, who was the uh, the foreign minister of Austria, is talking with him in a meeting, and Metternich is basically saying, "Look, uh, read the tea leaves here. You're uh, you you can't control all of Europe like you used to, and here's a here's a uh, a peace treaty that we can offer you where you can keep a lot of your territory, but and you'll have peace. You can do what you want, but you're gonna have to give up this. You have to surrender that." And Napoleon uh, just flew into a rage and threw something across the room and and uh, basically said this is a dishonorable treaty because he'd have to acknowledge that he wasn't the supreme power in Europe anymore. And uh, Metternich said, but just don't you care about your men's... Basically, Metternich was saying, but if you don't accept this treaty, there's just going to be more fighting. Uh, you're going to lose a lot more soldiers. And he said, don't you care about your soldiers' lives? And Napoleon had said, I'd rather lose a million lives than sign a dishonorable treaty. Mm. Uh, and uh, Metternich had looked at him and said, uh, Sir, Sire, you are a lost man uh, if you're willing to forfeit a million of your soldiers' lives because you personally feel embarrassed to have to acknowledge that uh, you're not supreme anymore. Mm. Uh, but uh, a lot of what Napoleon did initially when he invaded other countries was he kind of rode on the, the uh, popularity of the French Revolution, which was uh, a, a movement of the masses, of the people. Uh, and so when he would come into Italy or he would come into Germany in some places, there was a certain romanticism about him. I'm, I'm appealing to the people of Germany, the people of Italy. Uh, and, uh, and so a lot of the people would that he invaded, they actually kind of liked Napoleon. Uh, but what would happen is he would come over and conquer a country like Germany or Italy, and he would uh, put his leaders in place uh, to, to run the country. But because he was always fighting wars all the time, he, he constantly needed money. And so he would uh, have to start uh, taxing them and, and looting a lot of the treasures from those areas. And 
the foreigners he put in charge of the country would often act arrogantly and not for the best interest of the country. So what, what ultimately happens is he... Napoleon creates this nationalism among all of his enemies. And for instance, Germany used to be all a bunch of divided little tiny kingdoms. But when, and what gave France such an advantage was they were a united country, a big country with lots of people in it. So they could overwhelm a bunch of divided German states or Italian states and so on. Uh, but by the way they kind of bully and act arrogantly toward these German states, they, they've had enough of that. And so they start uniting together, working together as one. And, and so he, his, his, the way he handles his kingdom ends up turning his enemies against him. And Napoleon also, he did several things that left a legacy. For one, uh, he was one of the first to really use conscription. He he just had this voracious appetite for soldiers. He, he so many of them died yeah. under him that he had to keep recruiting more. And so at first, he's got the biggest, the most populous, uh, populous country in Europe, of uh, France, and so he's got a lot of men to draw upon. But uh, uh, but eventually, other countries start using this method, and so they start building up big armies, and so down the road when he's killed off a lot of his own citizens, uh, these other nations now have, have learned to conscript soldiers. Now they've got huge armies and when you put them all together, they've got way more men than he has. Uh, and Napoleon had, uh, he was one of the first to use a secret police. Uh, Johnson says, so many tools that dictators will use in the 20th century Came were from. basically invented from Napoleon. Hmm. So conscripting, to, like before, you would have basically a volunteer army or uh, or maybe a mercenary army that professional soldiers that you would hire, but you didn't have a, a national army, people, citizen army, where you you just tapped into all the the uh, resources of people in your country. But but Napoleon will do that, and of course, in the twentieth century, you're going to have these much larger armies of conscripted soldiers. He had a secret police that where he could control people. Of course, he's paranoid that there's always someone who's going to realize he's a phony and, and overthrow him. So he's one of the first to use uh, secret police to keep a lid on his uh, people. They actually had an election where he was, uh, a, they had an election to see if the, the nation wanted him to be their, their king or their emperor. And they actually uh, reported the vote, which was those in favor of Napoleon. It was like 3.5 million people voting in favor and uh, apparently about 2,500 voting against. And Johnson says this is also one of the first examples of a dictator grossly uh, faking an election (laughs) and uh, saying, wow, all these people in North Korea have unanimously voted for their leader to be president again. Yeah. Uh, And... And so he he just flat out um, falsifies an election uh, with because he controls the state. He also had a guy in charge of propaganda, and uh, and Johnson will say Goebbels for uh, Nazi Germany uh, took a lot out of his playbook of of playing up all of his victories and downplaying all of his failures. Napoleon was the kind of guy who could win a lot of battles. But he could never rule anything for very long. He he would conquer a, a, a country and put in a puppet leader, uh, but before long, the puppet leader couldn't keep a handle on the country, or there'd be rebellion, or 
he'd go in and win a battle in Spain and leave, but the Spanish opposition would be just growing rapidly. And, yeah. And so he, um, so it, no, nothing was very long lived. He had a very, short, you know, and, and the, the, uh, Johnson says the thing about Napoleon is that um, if his ego, if he could have kept it out of the way, there's a lot he could have done. For instance, uh, at one point he's trying to find a, a suitable marriage partner. So he actually really wants to marry the daughter of the Tsar of Russia. Uh, but the Tsar of Russia loves his daughter and and isn't that impressed with Napoleon. Napoleon sees the Tsar as a friend of his, but the Tsar says, well, I'll be your friend, but I'm not letting my daughter marry you. Uh, and so that, of course, really offends uh, Napoleon's honor and dignity. And finally, he takes about 650,000 soldiers and invades Russia, his former friend, which becomes the, the beginning of the end for Napoleon. He comes back, he has less than probably 20,000 of those soldiers ever return uh, from that foray. And that kind of huge loss of men and equipment yeah. and supplies, he's never able to overcome. But, but again, it's, a, it's an ego thing. And, uh, and he's always looking for some big success that will just convince the French that he is their, the best leader they've ever had in, in uh, their history. And so, uh, and, and then the, he's got the, he owns uh, a huge swath of, of the United States. Uh, he has the, all the Louisiana uh, territory uh, that France owns in America. And again, Johnson says if he had tried to fight less wars in Europe and just cultivate the, the, the Louisiana territory he had in America, that would have done more to harm Britain, his, his chief rival. It would have prospered France. Um, but he just, he could never take the long view. The, the, yeah. the Louisiana, uh, when, when, the, when the United States bought the Louisiana territory, ultimately that territory became 13 states. Uh, and he and Napoleon owned all that, but again, he he never took the long view of things. Yeah, and kind of like Henry VIII, we saw he kept looking for a male heir, and uh, eventually he does g get one. But kind of later in his rule, and uh, Johnson kind of speculates, well, perhaps if he'd had this son earlier in his life, he might have tried to rule in a way that kind of kept his empire together and was a little more conservative so his he could have something to pass on to his son. But when you don't have that son ready and it's all about you, then you tend to not think long-term and yeah. conservatively. It's uh, it's It was always, well, have you won a battle for me lately, Napoleon? And so he was always looking for that next big victory that would uh, convince his people of his uh, brilliance and and so he, it led him to a lot of foolish endeavors, and uh, and basically he just exhausts uh, his nation, it's the population, the money, and uh, but you look at all the hundreds of thousands of men who lost their lives on battlefields for Napoleon, and uh, and when it's done, you look back and say, and what did he accomplish? What's what's left here uh, besides a lot of yeah. battle sites and. Uh, and a playbook for dictators. <laughs> yeah, and uh, yeah, just so many things that he did. Um, later dictators would say, that's brilliant. That's how you control a, a big nation, and you can uh, change history. And, and uh, when you 
suffer a setback, you just you report it differently. Uh, not you don't tell the truth, and yeah, and so uh, yeah, even and, and but of course uh, because of the way he he dies, somewhat mysterious circumstances. He claimed he was being poisoned. There's not any conclusive evidence of that, but uh, he's exiled. Uh, he, he's not killed, which might have made things different for him. But uh, he dies on an, in an exile, uh, cursing everyone. In fact, he curses the British at one point and says, "If it hadn't been for the British, I would have been a man of peace." And uh, <laughs> which, of course, is nonsense. But uh, blaming yeah. others for his failures, uh, for not heeding advice. Uh, I, I guess the last thing to say about his weaknesses is he just was not good at delegating. He was, uh, Johnson says there was a huge chasm between him and his second in command. It was, uh, he was everything. And after Napoleon, he, you had to go down quite a ways down the, yeah. the skills uh, chain to find other leaders. He, he just never raised up a group of leaders and which goes to show that even a brilliant, daring, ambitious person can only go so far if you're not equipping other leaders and developing a pool of lieutenants that can be creative and uh, think for themselves. Uh, and it was all on Napoleon. And what, what history has shown is there's just no person who's brilliant enough and can work hard enough to sustain a, a major movement by themselves if you've not built up a core of people under you. And so he, for maybe two decades or so, uh, Napoleon dominates the world, uh, but uh, then he is gone from the pages of history. And it's interesting. We could post a couple of pictures. Uh, I was in uh, Waterloo or at Waterloo back in March, and uh, it's just a farmer's field now. They, It's in Belgium and they still plow it up and grow crops there, and they still periodically will find unearth a skeleton from a soldier on the battle or something, or a musket, or, or those kind of debris that got buried there. But uh, it's uh, the 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 land is littered with battlefields that he fought, and at the end of the day, you're saying, what was that for? What was the gain? Yeah, it was just one man pursuing his ego, mm. and um, and at the cost, a great cost of of uh, the people that he led. Well, it's a great uh, it's a great study in, in uh, the the perils of leadership and, mm. and how to keep your ego in check and, and what not to do. Um, just fascinating, fascinating uh, character in history. And so, thanks for taking us through the life of Napoleon. And uh, we'll leave it there and talk to you guys next time. Thanks for listening to the podcast. If this is something you enjoyed, it really makes a difference if you leave a review and a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. Don't forget to subscribe and share with your friends. We always love hearing from our listeners. So email us at podcast at blackv.org.